Hi, I'm Jess and welcome to the Diversity Project podcast. The Diversity Project was founded in early 2016 when a group of leaders in the investment and savings profession decided to take action to accelerate progress towards a more inclusive culture within the industry. We started this podcast because we wanted to provide a platform for people from all walks of life to share their journeys and how they've navigated their way to where they are now. We're really hoping to encourage people to join the industry or inspire those already in it to be able to achieve their goals. Today, I'm going to be speaking to entrepreneur, financial expert and activist, Robert Gardner. Rob is the investment director and an executive board member for St. James Place, a wealth manager with over 750,000 clients and $129 billion in funds under management. Rob started his career at Deutsche Bank before joining Merrill Lynch in their Insurance and Pension Solutions Group. In 2006, he left to co-found Reddington. This is one of the UK's leading investment consultancies. In 2008, Robert co-founded Mallow Street, an online community for the pensions industry. It brings pension fund decision makers and product providers together. In line with his goal to transform the lives of 100 million people by making them financially secure, Rob founded Red Start, a charity that teaches young people to budget, save, invest, and give back. He has authored the children's book, Save Your Acorns. This is to teach children how money works. He's given a TED Talk on the importance of teaching children about money, is the chair of the Children's Financial Education Policy Council in the UK, and a member of the World Economic Forum Retirement Council. We had such a fantastic conversation. Um, we discussed everything from being born in Holland to growing up in Argentina, going to boarding school in the UK, why and how he ended up going to Oxford, why he studied geography, and how certain decisions along the way have led him to where he is now. Rob gives such fantastic advice throughout, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Hi, Rob. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Jess. Good to good to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Look, Rob, you've made it your life mission to create financial well-being in a world worth living in. And today I'd like to dig deeper into the decisions that have led you to, to where you are now on this incredible journey. Cool. Well, excited to share. Great. So what I'd love to start with is young Rob. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Well, it, dep- it depends how young. I was born in Holland and... That's important because I was born below sea level. And just even as a toddler, I was kind of aware of the risk of sea level rising. And, and, and Holland's always just been much more progressive on recycling and, and just the environment. And I'll, I'll come back to that later. My parents were both teachers and we used to travel all around the world. That's why I was born in Holland. They were teaching at the British school in the Netherlands. They worked in the UK. And then in the 80s, we moved to Argentina shortly after the Falklands War or Las Malvinas. So it wasn't entirely obvious for a young British family to leave the UK and go and live in Buenos Aires. And so, yeah, fascinating time living and growing up in Argentina and and traveling around South America in the 1980s. You know, it wasn't the tourist destination that it is today. It was, you know, an interesting place to be. And then latterly, I ended up going to boarding school in the UK where my parents were not only my teachers, but my boarding parents. So that was an interesting experience. And then at 13, they went and got a job in the Middle East. They taught all over the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, Amman, Qatar, and sorry, Jordan, Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And 
I went to boarding school in Bristol. So that was a very different experience again, because I, I wouldn't, I barely see my mum and dad. So a varied upbringing. Certainly being a, an English boy in, in Argentina, I think the ability to fit in, the ability to both build an awareness of situations that are happening around you, even as a, a small boy, must have been developed from there. And then I think, you know, certainly from 13 onwards, when I went to boarding school and my mum and dad were in in Saudi and, you know, I'd get one phone call a term, you get airmail. Uh, that was the only form of communication, airmail, if people even remember what airmail is or was. And, you know, it makes you fiercely independent, right? You've got to kind of fight for yourself and make things work for yourself. Absolutely. So from Bristol to Oxford, can you talk me through that? that journey how did you what how did you decide on Oxford how, how was applying for it how was getting into Oxford how was that process well I take a step back because I think it was really driven by my A-level choices I was going to do maths physics chemistry because that's what my mum and dad did but actually I love geography a part of traveling around so much meant I've always loved geography I love physical geography you know so rivers and mountains and glaciers and I love human geography you know why are cities you know why is London like London is why did certain stuff happen where it did? And so, and I, like everything in life, I had a, you're influenced by a handful of key people. And I had some brilliant geography teachers who actually convinced me to do geography. So I dropped chemistry and did geography instead. And I was never planning on going to Oxford. I think, I, you know, I, I was going to go to Birmingham or, or Southampton. And they convinced me to apply to Oxford because it, it just wasn't in my it wasn't in my field of view. It wasn't something they thought about. My school didn't really have a track record of sending people to Oxbridge. And in fact, I did a major boo-boo. I mean, this is all pre... I mean, internet had just come out. I remember using a... You, know, you used to have to plug the internet into the... The dial uh, Into the phone. Yeah, yeah. The, the modem, the 56K <laughs> yeah. modem. And I remember applying... So at Oxford, you have to apply to colleges rather than to the university itself. And I got a letter back saying, thank you for your application, Rob. But, you know, this college doesn't actually offer a geography. We, sh- we think you should go to that one. In my mind, at that point, they should have said, you're such an idiot for not even realising that, that it shouldn't really <laughs> yeah. be considered. But I think what probably shone through is my, my passion for the subject. And that, you know, that was built up by the fact that, you know, probably at 18, I'd already travelled to like 30 different countries around the world and had a deep curiosity about, the world in which we live in and and how environment shapes us. Now, I know you like to live by a saying, begin with the end in mind. When you chose that field of study, what did you think you were going to be doing after that in terms of as your career? I think that was the problem. I think up until then, I felt like I was on this sort of treadmill of, you know, you need to study this in order to do that. Before that, I had wanted like every boy born in the 80s I wanted to be sort of maverick in Top Gun so actually at the age of 16 <laughs> I'd I'd applied for a flying scholarship with the RAF and and actually that was actually in terms of career wow some amazing life lessons and really I learned two things one is that I needed to wear glasses and b I didn't have the hand-to-eye coordination to be a fast jet fighter pilot but I, I learned the most valuable lesson that I have learned in my career today and still apply to this day which is always be prepared so I have this kind of mantra which is prepare practice perfect and I remember going to RAF Cranwell and and it was sort of like two three day interviews and they just asked me you know why do you want to be in the RAF tell us what planes you know air bases and my knowledge and understanding of the RAF compared with the boys and girls who ended up getting flying scholarships was night and day and luckily at the end you got a debriefing 
and I they're like look we're really sorry Rob you haven't got the flying scholarship and I was a bit disappointed and and they're like but here look this is what good looks like these people over here who got flying scholarships when we asked you this question this is the answer they gave and all the rest and so that was such a valuable life lesson for me actually the best advice I got when going when trying to pick which university to go to and more importantly what to study was pick a subject you love so actually the reason I, I studied geography is I just loved it otherwise again I think I'd have ended up doing maths and I would have I was good at maths but I didn't love it whereas I've always loved geography and I still have a kind of deep curiosity you know for geography today and in fact that's the bit I love about my job today is kind of combining that that understanding that multifaceted understanding of the world and the environment and bringing that into a into a financial sense so yeah my first piece of advice was do what you love and that was I think a great bit of advice that that obviously I followed and then at uni I experimented a lot I just did a lot of I joined the officer training corps so I still sort of was pursuing a career in the military and and actually I went and did my sort of territorial commissioning board with with Sandhurst so let's join the army I did internships with L'Oreal I remember sort of being involved in a project of designing male moisturizers and all the rest which in like 1999 was just not a market that was there so I got invited to L'Oreal's offices in London and that was cool I did stuff with the various big four accountancy firms but I was very lucky I managed to get an internship with Deutsche Bank. Can I ask on that, all of these different things that you were doing, is that by choice? Are you encouraged to do that? Or do you have to be someone that goes out of your way to go, I want to try this, I want to get involved in this? Yeah, the, the latter. I was, my friends at uni used to take the piss out of me because I remember arriving at Oxford and I mean, the privilege of going to a place like Oxford is every of the major employers does the milk round and comes there. And I remember you know, obviously I knew of people like Unilever and BP and Shell. And, and actually, if if you said to me at 18, what did you want to be? I thought I was going to join the foreign office. So I was kind of, you know, fast track foreign office, civil service. That was kind of where I wanted to go. Or maybe like a BP and a Shell to kind of travel the world. And, and you know, I wanted to be posted abroad and probably a bit like, you know, my parents, the world that I'd lived in, my mum and dad basically taught expat children around the world. So it was either military or BP or Shell or banks. So that was kind of my mental model of what a career after work, after uni looked like. So, no, I, my friends at uni used to take the piss out of me because I had a poster with every single careers thing, every single night <laughs> and on my wall. So that was my, like, my, my primary poster place was that. <laughs> and then I used to figure out the ones I'd go to to get sort of pissed for free because I knew I wasn't going to go there so like law, law firms and all the rest so that the law firms were where you went to kind of go and get your free food and free drinks and then go out and then basically yeah. you know get started for the evening for free Unilever and Procter and Gamble were always the best for freebies so you know <laughs> deodorant washing powder washing liquid ice cream you know you go to Unilever and Procter and Gamble you walk back with like a shopping bag full of just product so they were always just brilliant. So like everyone would be, and then they'd come to me and say, Rob, which of these should we go to? But then I'd do the accountancy ones. I'd do the investment banking. I'd never heard of Morgan Stanley, Dean Witter. I'd never heard of Goldman Sachs. I'd, I'd never, you know, I'd never heard of Merrill Lynch. You know, I'd heard of Barclays. And I'd heard of HSBC. But what, you know, what a merchant bank was or an investment bank was just so alien to me in my time at Oxford. And and so I used those kind of career fairs 
to really see what was out there, really get clear on what I didn't want to be. So I, I very quickly realized I didn't want to be a lawyer. And actually, the ones that got me excited and interested were these kind of investment banks, these these Deutsche Banks, these Merrill Lynch's, these Morgan Stanley's. It, it was just a world. It, it, it offered the stuff that I was looking for, which was sort of meritocracy, hardworking. But if you do well, you can move quickly and sort of the opportunity to travel the world. Those were kind of my my stuff to that I was looking for. And, and it just had an energy and a vibe about it that at that point in time was very attractive to me in terms of where I wanted to go as a graduate. Did any of those investment banks in particular attract you or was it almost one of these things where it's I'll apply to a number of internships and see where I go and that's how you ended up at Deutsche or what was the decision making behind Deutsche Bank? No I think it was that really although I, you know I didn't apply to every investment bank I mean I think my, my lesson from the REF experience was not to and I give this advice often not to sort of like apply to many people was to be really so specific. So I applied to Merrill Lynch. I actually applied to MLIM, which was the investment manager, which is now BlackRock. I didn't apply to Merrill Lynch. I applied to Goldman. I applied to Deutsche. So I didn't actually apply to that many. I think it was more depending which bank presented and probably who came to present. Because as you know, even within an investment bank or even within fund managers, there's so many different roles. And I was not interested in being an M&A corporate finance banker, absolutely. The bit that I was interested in was being on the trading floor. I was just this idea of like these numbers on the screen and that sort of trading floor environment was what got me excited. And it, it, it was probably just that the, the graduate presentation at Oxford that time was people from that department rather than from the M&A department. And, and therefore, my covering letter was all framed in, I attended your presentation and I met Jess and I heard her talk about what she was doing. It was really, so it was very specific, was I couldn't do that for the other companies because I'd not, I'd not heard them. So I, I think I only sent out three applications. Okay. So you got into Deutsche Bank. What was the first role that you did there? To be clear, that was a summer internship. Okay. So I did a summer internship in 1999. And here's the really interesting thing. I still have a WhatsApp group right now called DB99, and we're still all friends today. And they're all over the world, and they're all hyper successful people in Singapore, in Bali, in London, in Spain. Many of them have, you know, worked in New York over the years and Australia. But we're still friends right now, and we were WhatsApping each other this morning. It was a standard ten-week summer internship, and I had two rotations. And then on, at the end of that internship program, I got offered a job, a graduate job. And I started in September 2000 on their graduate program. And what did that involve? For people that don't understand what a graduate program entails, what are the different things you got involved in? Well, look, I mean, the first few weeks were, I mean, A, at that time, it was sort of amazing because they have all the graduates globally in London. So, you know, the Sydney graduates, the Tokyo graduates, the... Frankfurt graduates, the New York graduates. So if you can imagine like a few hundred 21 to 25 year olds all together for six weeks and we were in the Sadler's Wells, we basically took over Sadler's Wells and we were there having like proper boot camp trainings of teaching you like fixed income derivatives, how to price a swap, how to price a bond, duration modified duration like stuff you know I was a geography student so I mean most of them were like from LSE or masters in finance or the rest so I was just like what 
on earth is this? <laughs> in fact, I had to go on a special one week pre-course. There was like a group of people that they identified and said, look, because you've not studied finance, we're going to send you on a one week residential course before. And it was like basically how to get you good at Excel. It was almost like a Noddy's guide to before we even dropped you in this thing. But this six weeks was insane because it was eight till six, effectively lectures, eight till six lectures. But then there would be you know, presentations from people on the trading floor who would come and talk about their department, credit derivatives, interest rate derivatives, FX sales, debt capital markets, fixed income research. And here was a really valuable lesson because what they told us, HR told us was, what, look, whatever you do, let them come to you. What you don't do is you don't go and like go onto the trading floor and try and say, hey, Jess, can I come and do you? We will place you. Because then what was going to happen is we were going to go into three, I can't remember how many, six week or eight week or 10, it doesn't really matter, but three rotations. You then go through that and then you get finally placed. And they're like, you're in the kind of taxi rank. This is where you are and we will place you. Whatever you do, don't go to the trading floor and try and like cut side deals. So I was like, okay, yeah. Talk about knowing the rules of the game, right? <laughs> that, guess what? Everyone or most people were going and doing that. And I and I, I wasn't. So suddenly found out. I'm like, Jess, what were you doing? Like, oh, you know, I was just speaking. I was just having a coffee with so-and-so. I was just talking about my next rotation. I'm like, what? I thought, but I thought they told us not to do that. And like, well, yeah, but, and I think that's a really valuable lesson is trying to sort of understand how things actually work and how things work in reality. And I suppose the best analogy for me at uni was the difference between those people who queued to get into a nightclub and those who never queued to get into a nightclub. There's always a way into the nightclub without queuing, right? And I got there and the moment I saw it, I was like, "This, I'm the idiot stuck in the queue in the nightclub. There's, <laughs> there's a VIP back entrance onto the trading floor where... But how are you supposed to know that as someone, you know, maybe yeah, no. they had... Um, you had different experiences where they've been told that and different networks. You weren't. I mean, I was being, again, sort of very compliant and sort of following the kind of here's what, you know, here's what we were being told and what to do. I think it's an awareness point, right? It's just how aware of you of what is actually happening? What are your colleagues doing? What is happening versus not? And, and also, look, part of it is, you know, when the various people would come and chat, They'd come on stage and they say, hey, I'm Rob Gardner. I work in you know, FX structuring. This is what I do. And then there'd be a break. And the question is, you know, what do you do? Do you, and you know, at that point, there were no iPhones. So it wasn't like people were like checking their text messages or their WhatsApp sort of thing. The question is, do you just sort of hang back and just chat with the people on your table? Or do you go up to that speaker and say, hi, I'm Rob. I want to learn more and, and all the rest. And again, I think that's a really valuable lesson. If you're in these environments where there's a speaker, You've got two choices. You either walk up to them and say, Jess, I really enjoyed what you said. I thought that was really interesting. I'd love, I'd love to know more. We now have stuff like LinkedIn. Can I connect with you and all the rest? Or you just kind of stay at your table, pour yourself a coffee, check your WhatsApp or speak to the person next to you. And imagine 20 years of making the difference between those two choices. But we've all been there every single time, a graduate presentation, presentation where someone's come to your university or college to present. It's interesting, actually, I got a WhatsApp yesterday from someone saying, oh, I just met so-and-so, and he said he went to your old school and was speaking highly of you. And I looked at him, and he was like, this, this guy's like 15 years more younger than me. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I didn't go to school with him. And then I remembered that I, you know, I used to go back and do a lot of speaking to the sit form at my old school, and he was just referring to, uh, to that. And I, I think 
that's my point, right? Are you able to pick up and maintain that connection where someone came and spoke to your college, come and spoke to your university? Did you kind of make the most of that opportunity or did you just sort of let it just drift away? I think this is interesting and something that I'd love to give listeners an insight into. Being on the other end of that now, are you someone that would be open to communicating with someone that reaches out with you on LinkedIn, right? You know, how, how much time do you have to give to these people that are making the effort to reach out and make that step? So, look, I mean, I get a lot of people reaching out to me on LinkedIn all the time, a lot of people just trying to sell me stuff. <laughs> I think that, that the interesting thing is you can very quickly tell who's curious and who's not, who sends a personalised tailor. I just got one the other day. I did one for City Parents UK on for parents on, you know, should you open an ISA or pension for child? And some, someone just sent me a LinkedIn message and said, oh, I just saw your video. It was so helpful. Do you mind if I connect with you? Like me and my husband are thinking about this. So there's a pers- it's back to my point. It was a personalized, I heard you talking on this video about this. It really did this for me and my husband because of this. I'd like to not, hey, I'm Rob, Jess, can I connect with you? Yeah. That's the difference. And I tell you what, for every 10 LinkedIn requests I get, only one is like that lady's nine are just a blanket, just can I connect with you? So I think this is excellent advice for anyone listening of how to approach people that they want to learn from, right? It's putting that extra effort in, making yourself stand out from all of the other people around you. Look, the truth is we all have 168 hours in the week and we need to choose to how they do that. So why should I invest more effort in someone who's reached out to me than the effort. So it's going to be proportional to the effort and care that you put into reaching out to someone. So tell me about the rest of your time at Deutsche Bank then. So you went through the graduate programme. Yeah, well, look, I started out in foreign exchange. I managed to get in again because when I was 18, I used to work in a bureau de change. So before the euro came in, again, you know, we used to have pesetas and French francs and Deutschmarks and Italian lira. So in the summer holidays, I used to work in a like proper old school bureau de change. I'd be sat behind this like double thick bulletproof glass. There'd be like these double doors. And I'd have a safe with like millions of French francs, about a million French francs, because it was about 10. So that would have been about 100,000 pounds. Imagine like a million French francs. And then people come in and go like, here's 500 pounds. Here's $500. Here's a thousand Deutschmarks. Here's this many pesetas. And then slowly over time, your your French francs would go down and then you'd end up with all of this. And then halfway through the day, you'd log on to what was called Minitel, which was like CFAX, but it was like pre-internet and it would have all the FX rates. And then you'd call up like the Arab Bank or the Calion or all the rest. And then I used to put the money in a bum bag and get on a motorbike, a little moped, like literally with, can you imagine being like, and this is a hundred thousand pounds worth of money 20 years ago. So Imagine trying with that cash and then get on a moped, like go like the clappers down the road. And then I'd walk walk into the Calion. It wasn't Calion, it was Credit Lyonnais or the Arab Bank. And then they have these counting machines. And I basically go, okay, here's some lira, here's some pesetas and all the rest. And they count it all up. It would all go in, all the exchange rates, check it, and then get another million French francs back and then come back. And you just do that all day long. (laughs) And so even as a seven-year-old boy, I was, you know, grew up in an environment of hyperinflation. Inflation, prices were changing every day in Argentina. You'd go to the supermarket and prices would change in the morning. Inflation was running at over 30% a month. 
And my mum and dad every month used to take their salary, take us out, go to the shops, get haircuts, get new clothes, and then they changed their money to dollars illegally on the black market because you weren't allowed to do this. Because if you didn't do that, imagine your money. Imagine what you got paid today is worth 30% less in a month's time, Jess. Mm-hmm. So if you didn't do that, your money got inflated away. So as a seven or eight-year-old boy, I understood this because every month we would go through this routine. And then my parents would hide the money. We would then go traveling all over South America. We did the Inca Trail when I was like seven. We would travel all over. We're traveling through Peru and Bolivia in the 80s was dangerous. There was this thing called Sendino Luminoso. I mean, it wasn't the kind of Peru-Bolivia trip of, of the 2010s and 2020s. And I used to carry all the money, traveler's checks. So seven, eight-year-old boy. So my mom and dad would carry enough money for two days. And then I would carry enough money for all of us for the whole six-week trip in a money belt. I suppose what I'm trying to tell you is that at seven or eight, I had an acute understanding of money. I knew every foreign exchange rate in Latin America to the dollar. So like for a lot of people, they just don't understand inflation, right? And the, you know, if you lived in the UK, unless you lived through the 70s, people haven't experienced inflation. Was It wasn't quite Zimbabwe, Venezuela inflation, but you know, 30% a month is serious. That's serious, serious inflation, right? So that's your money halving every two months. So let's finish up with Deutsche Bank because I'm keen to understand your next move to Merrill Lynch. So I know Darwin hired you into Merrill Lynch. What was the last, let's say, year at Deutsche Bank and what was the transition and why did you make that move? Well, I think, you know, one of the best pieces of advice I've been given at Deutsche Bank was to get a mentor and kind of learn from that mentor. And again, I'm still in contact with those two mentors today. One of them's guy called Lutfi Siddiqui, who's based in Singapore, another guy's a guy called Bobby Vidral, who's now working at a at a hedge fund. And I changed roles. I'd moved from a foreign exchange structuring role. So I worked in what's called Global Risk Strategy Group, advising companies on how to manage their foreign exchange risk. And then I decided to move to a UK sales job. And what became apparent was I lost that mentorship the, the person who was my mentor actually left to go to Goldman Sachs. They were hiring a new person into to Deutsche Bank at the time. It was going to be my new boss and actually had a pretty bad reputation. And I was, I think like everything in life, it was a bit sort of sliding doors. I got a call from a, a headhunter called Matt Osborne who just said, hey, look, this is Guy Dowd looking for someone who, like you, who wants to come and join. I was also, in, interestingly, at the same time interviewing internally to change jobs and become an, an oil trader. And so I was quite interested in commodities. And it was probably this time in 2003, I had these two opportunities to either leave Deutsche Bank and go to Merrill Lynch and work with Dowid or move internally and become a sort of oil derivatives trader. I mean, two very different sort of career paths. This is what I find so interesting. I know so many people that have these moments. How do you make that decision? Well, firstly, there is no right answer, right? So you never, that's, that's why these the people get paralyzed by decisions because there is no counterfactual. For me, my theme through all of this is sort of, you know, relationships sort of matter. And it wasn't about Merrill Lynch. You know, what I bought into was Dowd. Mm-hmm. It's not like I moved from Deutsche Bank to Merrill Lynch is I'd lost a mentor. And at that point in my career, the person who was going to offer me the best sort of mentorship was Dowd. He happened to be working at Merrill Lynch. Yeah. Just to make that distinction. That's interesting. What did you go there to do? What team did you join? So David was running a, a UK solutions desk, like the one I was on at Deutsche Bank, but he was doing all these big 
long dated asset liability trades with insurance companies. In the early 2000s, insurance companies were doing these guaranteed annuity option hedges. And in fact, there was someone on my desk already doing that. And I thought, oh, that's quite interesting. It, it was, I suppose it appealed to my more long term nature and proper sort of really trying to use financial engineering to create a, a sort of really good financial outcome rather than to create a certain payoff or, or just to make money for the, for the sake of making money. So he was doing that. He'd done some big transactions with Friends Provident at the time. And he said, look, I, I need someone to come over and do what you're already doing, which is looking after the UK banks and building societies and the Irish banks, but I'll train you up to do this kind of insurance and pension. So he's, he basically ran the UK solutions desk, but he also ran the insurance and pension solutions group. And so I moved over to, to join him. And literally the year I joined was the year that him and Phil Rose, and, and I was involved with the transaction, create did the first ever liability-driven investment trade with Friends Provident in 2003, which is you know one of the most pioneering trades in defined benefit asset liability management in the last you know in the last 20 years. Do you think that that's what led you to becoming one of the youngest directors globally? Do you think that was part of it? No, it was actually I worked on another trade with another client. There was an insurance company that had these hybrid guaranteed annuity options, so they were linked to the unit value. And I worked on this transaction, which was incredibly complicated. So each of the derivatives had a notional. So instead of being a notional of 10 million pounds, it had a notional that was linked to the level of the FTSE. So this transaction ended up being 120 swaps and swaptions, where the nominal leg was linked to the price of the FTSE. And at the time, Merrill Lynch didn't have the risk appetite to do what's called a quanto, which is how do you take it from being linked to something fixed to something floating. But we'd worked on the design. So we tailored it. We'd worked with the client. We designed it. We'd come up with this amazing hedge. But then Merrill Lynch just didn't have the risk appetite on the correlation to do it. And we managed to, we then, again, this is the kind of entrepreneur street hustler mm-hmm. in us. We managed, to, <laughs> we managed to find another bank. It happened to be a French bank to give us the correlation hedge because they were always known as being a little bit more sort of aggressive on that front. But we had to head fake. So we then said, well, look, this thing is quantoed into Canada to make them think it was a Canadian insurance company. And then at the last minute, we said, you know, we wanted it quantoed into CAD. Just leave it. Actually, we just want to keep it really simple. And so people we were doing it were also talking to the same client. So we were trying to sort of do this transaction with a client. And anyway, on the back of that, even 20 years on now, it's probably one of the most innovative transactions of its of its kind. And it saved the insurance company, you know, millions in capital and and you know helped the policyholders and all the rest. So yeah, that, that's what got me promoted to director. So do you think that these situations as well as what led you and Dowd to start thinking about a life outside of Merrill Lynch? Dowd and I were passionate about helping these final salary pension funds. You know, we must have had hundreds of meetings with finance directors, chairs of trustees, CIOs of pension funds saying, have you thought about your assets and your liabilities and modeling the two and understanding the risk that you're running and, and, you know, and actually you can fix it. And, you know, people were deeply skeptical. We were a bunch of investment bankers who were offering to do all of this advice and structuring for free, but, you know, on the hope promise that you'd end up doing the derivatives with us. 
we had a real strong belief that this was the best thing for the pension fund. It was the best way to sort of manage the deficit risk and, and close the gap. And we realized that the only way that we could help all these pension funds is if we could actually jump the other side. Because it was what would happen is we'd go and meet with a, a finance director or a chair of trustees of a pension fund, and he or she would say, oh, that's really interesting, Rob Dowd. Why don't you go and speak to our investment consultant and see what they see? And guess what? The investment consultant would look at it and then be very defensive and just give a thousand reasons why it doesn't work and just basically shoot it out the sky. And so we realized that actually, if we were ever going to affect real change, was that we had to go and leave investment banking and, and sort of set up a new, better consultancy. So that was the driver. I mean, when we set up, at the time, the financial regulator was the FSA, not the FCA. You have to write a business plan to apply to get become FSA registered. And we said we wanted to do to pensions what Jamie Oliver had done to school food. And by that was we wanted to kind of, there was this kind of, in, at the time, there was this deep problem where school food was basically terrible. It was unhealthy. And people just didn't think there was a way to, you know, on a budget, do good, healthy food that children would eat. And we pensions was this sort of top, top subject that no one really cared about, wasn't really interested in, but we thought had, you know, huge importance to both individuals and society. And we wanted to show that there was a better way to that you could actually manage the risk and get a good outcome without putting the company at risk of insolvency. And so that's what drove us to, to set up Reddington. How did your parents feel? So you tell them you're resigning from this job where you've become really successful, you're at Merrill Lynch. What was their thoughts? Yeah, they, they thought I was crazy. And in <laughs> fact, pretty much everyone thought I was crazy. Why would you leave the safety and security of your employment and one where suddenly you've just been because I literally got promoted I think in the January and I resigned on in the March so I never really sort of benefited from that from that promotion if that if that makes sense so and you were 27 at the time right yeah How yeah did you think you were going to gain credibility from clients at that age who were obviously slightly older than you <laughs> I'm glad you asked that question because as I was leaving Merrill Lynch, someone pulled me into a room and said, look, Rob, let me explain to you why you're making the biggest mistake of your life. And he pulled out his business card and he showed it. He says, look at this. And on it was the bull of Merrill Lynch. And he says, Rob, what you have to understand is people only talk to you because you work at Merrill Lynch. As I understand it, you're going to leave and set up your own thing. Why would anyone want to talk to you, Rob? Just remember that, that people talk to you because you work at Merrill Lynch. I was like, hmm, okay, that's interesting. Look, I, whether, whether when I was at Deutsche Bank, when I was at Merrill Lynch, I always remember, you know, I remember someone at Deutsche Bank coming up to me and saying, look, Rob, you've got a corporate credit card. You're not spending enough taking out clients. You've got the lowest, basically you just don't use it. Like, why don't you go out and take clients out more? And I was like, because that's not what I wanted to be known for. I always remember, like, what do you want to be known for? And I wanted to be known for understanding my clients really well and giving them really sort of tailored insight perspective to their problems and look by 27 i'd already done some really interesting stuff with clients both at deutsche bank and at merrill lynch you know the french provenance trade we we did a, a couple of L, big ldi trades that this trade with the insurance company that i talked about so you know i the credibility was there the, the issue was the perceived credibility for someone who didn't know me right as you write, a 27-year-old who walked through, you, know, you use all the tricks in the book. You know, you wear glasses because they make you look older. You wear a suit, whereas I do I do the opposite now. I wear, you know, I wear contact lenses and I, I don't wear a suit because I want to look younger than I am. There's stuff you can do to make yourself look older or younger than you are. So, you know, you could sort of 
make yourself look like you're in your early 30s rather than 27. And then also, I think that was the powerful combination of Dawid and I. Dawid, uh, as, as, you, as you probably know, has immense gravitas and presence. He was already an MD, but just his persona and presence in a room. When we first set up Reddington, we'd go to meetings together and we were just this, this very powerful double act, this sort of duo, I think a really powerful sort of combination. And, and as soon as we kind of got into things, I think you know people clearly understood that I knew my stuff and and could very quickly establish credibility. The issue was that initial credibility up front. Yeah. And then you won Royal Mail as the first client, assuming that's helped with future conversations. Yeah, look, and again, I think credibility is earned. And I think it's so true. You know, it takes 10 years to become an overnight success, right? And I think that's what people don't realize. Someone the other day said to me, you know, like, what, you know, when you post something on LinkedIn, you get like thousands of views and hundreds of likes and comments. I said, yeah, that's because I've been doing LinkedIn for over 10 years. And I've been doing it every week. That's cumulative buildup. You know, when I first started using it, I didn't know anyone and I wasn't doing anything. And the same is true for credibility. Credibility is earned and nurtured, and then you build on that. Frank Chanella, who was the FT of Royal Mail at that time, I think took big personal career risk on backing Dowd and I. You know, obviously he he could see that we had something different that he wasn't getting from anyone else at the time. He could have hired anyone. He could have hired any consultant, any investment bank. And I think what he could see, he could get the kind of intellectual thinking of two ex-Merrill Lynch bankers, but without that kind of conflict of interest that comes with being investment bankers. So I think he saw that, yeah, he, he was getting something that wasn't available. And so although Reddington Partners LLP, as we were called at the time, was this tiny company actually what he was really doing was hiring Dowd and me and he did a huge favor for us because I remember we went for dinner at Christmas and when he did our contract he specifically wrote into our contract at the time that it was really my name and his name rather than Reddington and at the Christmas dinner he said to us he says look your job I hired you to your job going forward is to convince people to hire Reddington, not you. Well, let's fast forward now to 2016. You built the firm to a place where you, you'd become hugely successful in the investment consulting world. You and David wanted to dedicate more time to clients, innovation and people development is what you said. And you made the decision to bring on a CEO. Can we talk about how that felt? Obviously, this was your baby, you know? Yeah, look, I think in any business when you found a business businesses go through different stages businesses are no different from people they start up and then they have their kind of scale up phase and then they grow and i think you know we knew that reddington was never going to be this sort of like boutique business we could have easily built a small boutique business and kept it there whereas what we wanted to do was build this sort of enduring business that would grow and succeed without us in it and that's always the test because the big question is can that business grow and succeed without its founders or the, you know the, the original idea or the people behind that and so a bit like planting a tree for us Reddington was a kind of culture project right you've got to sort of do two things I mean I think the definition of true leadership is the ability to create leaders that can follow on and, and take over and so you talk about beginning with the end in mind. Once you start thinking that through, then you realize that you need to start developing that next layer of talent and leadership and all the rest. So that was the background to that transition in five years ago now. It was sort of 2016 we made Mitesh CEO. But, How you know, was that, that was, process? Did you meet a lot of people? 
before well, you decided on on Mutech? It was a year long process. I mean, a it was kind of deciding that we want to do it. Then there was, do we want to go internal or external? We kind of designed a kind of contextual model, and at the time, we felt the most important thing was that two things. One is that we wanted to demonstrate that we could create leaders from, from within the business. And two, the culture of Reddington was probably our number one priority. So this is kind of like very strong cultural North Star. And we ran a process with various people applied internally. In fact, just the number of people who implied internally gave us real belief that actually we have created a sort of a team of leaders because every single one of those was extremely sort of competent. And then we designed a, a framework for what we thought the CEO should the key attributes, and then all the candidates came and gave like these kind of proper two, three-hour presentations to Dowd and I in terms of their vision, their strategy, their priorities, how they'd approach our culture. Through that process, we appointed Mitesh as the CEO. So that was the process we went through. I mean, actually, what people don't realize is we actually went through the same process with Mallow Street. So we appointed Stu Pereira as CEO of Mallow Street in 2016, because before that, Dowd was really running Mallow Street the other business that we'd founded. So yeah, for actually we appointed that don't know, two can you, CEOs. Can you give a bit of insight into what Mallow Street is and how it fits into all of this? <laughs> yeah, I suppose I, that's the kind of innovators and disruptors in Darren and I. I remember when we set up Reddington, we had no marketing budget. And suddenly all of these things were just taking off Twitter, LinkedIn. I remember getting an invite from someone to come like, oh, I want to join LinkedIn. And then we sort of started using social media and realizing that there was a whole sort of group of people who were sharing ideas and, and you know, you could interact with people in Australia and South Africa and, and America. And it was just a really interesting way to get ideas and share ideas and the sort of like wisdom of the crowd and sort of, you know, all the positive things of social media, which, you know, we, we mustn't forget. So we were using that really as a tool to raise our credibility, our brand presence and all the rest. And we thought, well, actually, there's something here. There's something magical, right? You've got people who've never met each other helping each other out. I mean, there, there are people that I interact with on LinkedIn and Twitter in Australia and South Africa I have never met, but I have been interacting with them for over a decade. I mean, that's insane, right? Because you've got a community of over 3,500 members now, right? Like, that's huge. Oh, on Mallow Street, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah, no, so... So the idea behind Mallow Street was what, and again, it was trying to, it was a different way of solving the same problem, which is how do we sort of ensure a better retirement for everyone? And it was, well, what if we could kind of create a space where people could come together, collaborate, share ideas, and benefit from the wisdom of the crowd? So that was the idea. And so, yeah, Mallow Street was started in, in March, well, it was started in November 2009. And the reason it's called Mallow Street is that Reddington was on Mallow Street. So our first office, well, our first offices were Dowd's Attic and my spare bedroom. But our (laughs) first kind of office offices were Mallow Street, just off Old Street Roundabout. And so when we created Mallow Street, we set up a new company and we named that company after Mallow Street, the street that we were on. And it was, again, it was nice. Mallow Street is the sense that it's a street, it's a community. It's this idea that we can all get a better retirement outcome for everyone if we get together, meet other trustees, meet CFOs, meet fund managers, actuaries, lawyers. If we all work together, share ideas and collaborate and, and do that. And again, it's fair to say Mallow Street was before its time. It had a really tough start. I remember we had to make a whole load of people redundant. There's the first redundancy program. I've now done three redundancy programs, but the first one was, was Mallow Street because we were just 
yeah, we were just ahead of our time. Yeah, the reality was people weren't using social media the way they are today. And was if I think about what Mallow Street does now and, and how it's kind of really accelerated in the COVID world, you know, over the last 12 months, because, you know, we've been forced to interact digitally for, for over a year now. That's an incredible journey. And, and again, I think people see the Mallow Street today and what it does and Stu Brown, how successful it is. But I promise you, there were some really tough, tough times in the early years before we got there. So you had Reddington, you had Mallow Street. As if you weren't busy enough, you also launched Red Start. <laughs> Can we talk about that? Yeah, well, Red Start was, you know, at Reddington at the, at the time, we were trying to think what our corporate social responsibility policy was. It was A, something that I think is important to do and be candidly something you know when you're applying for business people ask you what's your csr policy what do you do and and i didn't want it to just be a tick box exercise and we you know we do this and I was, so I, I put real thought and effort into like what should it be and my research basically led me to the conclusion that it should be focused on using your company's resources your company's services or intellectual property to help people rather than giving money or, or time actually giving money or time isn't necessarily the the best thing so at the time, I could see final salary pension schemes were being closed more and more. Defined contribution was on the rise. Auto-enrollment was coming in. But people just didn't really understand what the difference between pension A and pension B was. So, hey, my mum and dad had a pension. I have a pension. It must be the same. They are not the same. They're going to give very different financial outcomes to people in the future. And as I drilled into it, I realized that people's understanding about money was nothing like my understanding of of money. So people didn't understand what inflation was. People didn't understand interest rates. People didn't understand the difference between owning one stock or a, a basket of stocks. And so, you know, in that kind of Richard Branson, screw it, just do it. We, we just approached a local school and said, would it be cool if we came in and started teaching your GCSE students about money and how it works and the difference between rich and poor people is those who, those who are rich keep their money first and then spend the difference was those that spend their money and then save what they have at the end and so that was the genesis of red stop and as we went through it has evolved like everything you know it evolves it grows and our standalone trustee it's a standalone charity so it's no longer csr project so it's actually a standalone charity it has its own trustee board we have some amazing trustees people like kate jones who's on the ppf and various other things we've got roger mason who's at l gym we have some amazing teachers we have one of the most amazing ceos of a collection of schools in in the uk so we've got teachers we've got people from across the industry passionate about how do we help a million young people learn how to budget save invest and give back and you know again in in eight years a bit like compound interest yeah every year we have a bigger and bigger impact and that's cool so that's school age you also authored a book for children even younger was between the ages of four to six called save your acorns what was the thinking behind that yeah, well, obviously, whilst all of this is going on, life also happens, right? So I met my wife at Merrill Lynch. So we, we first started dating 17 years ago. I remember it was April 2004. We got married in 2008. So she went through that journey of me resigning from Merrill Lynch. We were just boyfriend and girlfriend then to me starting my own business and getting married. We started a family and it was our first daughter. And I was kind of reading a lot of books to her. And not really able to kind of get out much. You know, there's a lot of just sleeping, feeding, sleeping, feeding. And normally I used to sort of challenge myself to raise money for charity. I, you know, I'd cycled Lantern to John O'Groats. I'd abseiled off the Shard. 
always trying to raise money for charity. And I, I was like, I can't really do that with a small baby. So I thought, what could be my charitable project? And so I, I wrote a book. And look, at the time, the financial education research had very clearly shown that our money-saving habits are formed by the age of seven. There's just so little financial educational support for that early stage. And look, I just went out. I bought a whole load of children's books in the four to six category, which is kind of lower primary school. The best-selling book in that category is called The Gruffalo by Julia Donaldson. <laughs> and, and Save Your Acorns is the same number of pages and the same word count as Gruffalo. Like the thinking. So <laughs> I, I kind of was like, okay, there must be a formula here. And then, yeah, I wrote the book and it must have been edited about 17 times. I gave it to every primary school teacher I knew. I mean, because my mum and dad are, parent, are teachers, my auntie and uncle are teachers, my cousins are teachers. So I know a lot of teachers. And actually, the difference between the first draft and the last draft was just really making those sentences shorter and shorter and the words really simple because they have to be they have to be words that a four to six year old can read and understand, not an adult. So I remember I, I talked about the banana shriveled up and I changed it to dried up. That's just one example of that. But I think that's important because I think it relates to financial services full stop, which is I think we're guilty of using really complicated language. So writing Save Your Acorns forced me to distill some really quite complicated concepts around money. I mean, if you read the book, it's only 850 words. There's some really quite simple but powerful financial concepts that are just packed in a really short book. That takes time to do. And I mean, the thing that I'm off the back of that, I created a card game called Silly Monkeys in 2019. It got translated. I work with a charity in Spain. So it's a horror tus peyotas and it's available in Spain, in Spanish. Last year, actually at the start of this year, we got translated in, into Cantonese and is available in, in Hong Kong and Cantonese. I, I can't pronounce Save Your Acorns in, in Cantonese, <laughs> but that's cool. And I've got someone who's approached me who wants to translate it in, into German. And, and, and my goal is just to get, you know, Save Your Acorns into as, in front of as many kids and parents as possible. It's also a bit of a Trojan horse, by the way. It's as much written for parents as it is for, for kids. And you'd be amazed the amount of kind of Facebook messages or LinkedIn messages I get from parents who go, oh, I was reading my this book to my son or my daughter. And, you know, I wish I'd read this book when I was younger. I'm such a monkey. Or I wish I could be more squirrel. And you're like, okay, that's cool. That The, the kind of concept has landed. And one thing you touched on there was your wife or your then girlfriend. One thing I'm curious about is what entrepreneurship and this life that you've led of you know having so many goals and ambitions what that does to family and personal life because there's only as you mentioned before a certain amount of hours in a week right how does that translate into being successful in both well the the danger is that you end up sacrificing one at the expense of the other so without going into too much detail there was a point sort of in about 2013 where you know our relationship hit pretty rock bottom and it and only because at the end of the day it, what is important to you is where you spend your time and money and energy and what my wife was calling out was you know you can't keep dressing up that you're working really hard on Reddington because you're doing it for the family and all, all the rest so and I was keen to start a family and she was really keen to say look if you want to start a family you've got to make family your priority so I think up until that 2013 conversation the, the reality is career and work had been my priority. 
there's this concept called the four burners. I don't know if you're familiar with the four burners, but it's if, if life is like a kitchen stove and there are four burners, one is your relationships, one is your health, one is your, you know, one is your kind of career. It's sort of family, it's health, it's career. Uh, I don't remember what the other one is actually, but it basically makes the point that you can't have all burners on full all the time and you've got to pick. And that can change as you go through your career. When you're younger and you're single, you can focus much more maybe on career and friendships. Oh, that's it. So it's not relationships, it's family and friends. So it's family, friends, health, and kind of career work. And it says you can only ever have two burners on full at once. And it's just a really interesting way of framing things because obviously as you go through, that becomes the, the, the sort of priority. So for me, and, and also there's that, I don't use all your health accumulating wealth because when you're wealthy and you have no health, there's no point, right? And so as I've kind of gone through this journey, you kind of need to reprioritize what's important. And I, I think for me, you talk about beginning with the end in mind, there was this brilliant book, which I read in 2014 and I've read it. It's probably my most read book. It's probably my number one favorite book, which is How Will You Measure Your Life by Clay Christensen. And he just makes the point that so many people sort of leave university with kind of bold ideas and goals in terms of what they do. And then they kind of lose their way. And it's probably because they haven't clearly nailed down their sort of priorities and all the rest. And so for me, first and foremost is my kind of family and, and health. And it's not to say I always get it right, but I have that written down as a priority and I review it and come back to that. And everything else is only if I can achieve that without compromising that. So in 2018, Reddington, you were employing 143 people, advising on more than 360 billion of assets. And then you decided to depart the firm to join Wealth Manager St. James Place. So how did this come about and why? This was a kind of a natural evolution of the appointment of Mitesh as CEO of Reddington, right? It was this kind of, you either stay in the business and stay in all the time, or you kind of step back and let the next generation of leaders come through. So, you know, we couldn't stick around in the business forever but it was a bit sliding doors if I'm honest I wasn't really sure there were a number of opportunities available to me I had lots of Ned type opportunities coming my way but I kind of felt I was a bit too young to becoming a Ned and so I was very lucky I was actually having breakfast with my predecessor SJP uh, David Lamb and he he sort of confided in me that he was going to be retiring and that they were running a process to look for his successor and that he wanted you know he wanted to include me as his successor in that process and so I kind of looked into it and and the more I looked into it it was a kind of elegant way to kind of step away from Reddington and let Mitesh and the team take Reddington to the next level and it was an opportunity for me to get much closer to the end client I mean you know in 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 SJP we're advising children mums and dads grandparents and making a real significance to their financial well-being. And also at the same time, as you know, we when I joined, it was 96 billion. We're now over 130 billion. We've got over 39 fund managers and we have real scale and influence. So the ability to use that 130 billion to be a force for good and, and ensure that not only we create the financial well-being for our clients, but actually use that money to create a world worth living in, that that is extremely powerful and incredibly proud of what the team have achieved over the last few years, whether it's getting all of our fund managers signed up to UNPRI, whether it's signing up to Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance, but really embedding ESG with this idea of 
helping make companies better. So absolutely focused on delivering performance and, and managing risk, but also this idea that all businesses can become better. And, and how do you use money to shape that? Now, I'm aware you'd like to live by a 100-year plan. <laughs> so, so what's next for you, Rob? What, what do you see in the future? Well, I, I think I've only just got going at SJP. So I think there's a lot more to do. Those projects are still running in the background. The reality is that, you know, my family is my project at the moment. You know, my my youngest daughter now starts school, which is nuts. One thing I have done is I've written a book called Prosperity, How to Achieve Financial Prosperity for You, Your Family and, and the Planet, which hopefully I'll be publishing later this year. And really that's written that sort of 27, 28 to 45 year old. So it's people who've been working for four or five years, who've got a bit of money, maybe think about buying a home, haven't maybe thought about a pension or maybe have started a family. It's that sort of not right at the start, not at the beginning of your career, but a little bit into your career, but where you've still got enough time ahead of you to make some really critical financial decisions. Later this year, we're relaunching one of our our global equity funds is going to be a 13 billion pound fund that's completely aligned with a one and a half degree C world. So it's probably going to be the largest fund of its type on the planet, really driving this kind of outcome of financial well-being in a world worth living in. So that's really exciting. I suppose what I want to get across, you make it sound like a lot, but all of it is just the trick is ordinary things consistently done for a long period of time, create extraordinary results. So there's no one big thing. It's just lots of little things done persistently. I think that leads really well to what I'd love to finish on is if if you could leave listeners with one piece of advice, I know it's probably hard to choose one, but what's something I think you'd like to tell people either that are starting out their careers or are already in the industry, maybe looking at changing their career paths. What's something that you've found really valuable? If I can cheat and have three, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have this kind of Venn diagram of intellectual capital, financial capital, and social capital. And I think you need to be building those continuously and compounding on them. So intellectual capital, never, 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 never stop learning. You atrophy so quickly. And we now live in a world of like massive technology change. So be curious, read books, listen to podcasts, you know, read magazines, meet other people, be just curious when, you know, when you meet people, what can I learn from you, Jess? So that's one sort of intellectual curiosity. Two is social capital. Relationships matter. I, I met my wife at Merrill Lynch. I met Darren at Merrill Lynch. I told you that I started at Deutsche Bank and we still have a WhatsApp group together. When I was at university, I was in the officer training call. And we all went to Peru together. We were WhatsApping this morning. Relationships matter. Imagine you've got relationships that are going to last you for the next 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. And not all of those relationships will be good. So some of those you'll have to cut. And then the third thing is build financial independence, you know, never be forced into a situation because you can't afford to. So as quickly as possible, build financial independence. And you've heard me say it before, earn it, keep it, grow it. So Mm -hmm. that's my advice. Well, thank you so much for your time, Rob. It's been incredible hearing your journey and I look forward to seeing where, where you continue to go. Well, thanks for having me on. Thank you so, so much for listening. To find out more about Rob's mission and work with St. James Place to achieve financial well-being and a world worth living in, I highly recommend visiting the website link attached. It details their commitment towards responsible investing. I've also included a link to his personal LinkedIn page, Reddington, Red Start, Mellow Street, and his TED Talk, which is, if you leave your children one thing, make it this. Mm-hmm.